All right. Who's happy to be in church tonight? There we go. Okay, so you can go ahead and turn in your Bibles to the book of Matthew, right? That is the first book in the New Testament. Um, I want to say a special welcome to any of you who are new here. If this is your first time with us, thank you for coming tonight. It is an honor and a pleasure uh, that you would join us tonight. Uh, Tonight we're celebrating a lot of things. Uh, We are celebrating the resurrection first and foremost. We're celebrating new life. And uh, so there's a couple of specific things that I want to get to before the obvious stuff, right? The reason why we're here to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus. The first thing that I want us to celebrate as a church and tuning in right now is the Navarro family. This afternoon, little Marcus Navarro um, asked his father Manny to lead him in prayer to receive Christ as his Lord. So, Navarro family, we celebrate with you so, so much as a church. Okay, um, we are excited to get a baptism on the, on the calendar here at some point. Uh, another thing that I want us to celebrate, we celebrated this uh, together last week, but now that uh, the parties are with us, so to speak, we want to celebrate together the national champion fencing team. The national champion fencers, some of them are with us there in the back. And specifically, Stephanie, would you please stand for us? This is, this is our national champion. She is better than everyone in the world, okay? No one beats her, right? Stephanie, you are the best. So, um, on that note, how many athletes do we have with us here today? Athletes. Raise your hand if you're an athlete. Okay, we've got several official athletes uh, from from Notre Dame. We've got Notre Dame diving, Notre Dame rowing, Notre Dame fencing uh, that are represented. Um, How many of you have ever been on any sports team? Any kind of sports team, all right? So we will will count you as athletes, okay? We all count as, we're, we're not as good, but we still count as athletes. Um, now, as, as you have experienced the athletic world, how many of you have ever been heckled by fans? Raise your hand if any fans have ever heckled you. Okay, a few. All right. How, how many of you have been present in the stands while heckling has taken place, right? You've witnessed heckling, right? How, how many of you have been the heckler? No one wants to raise their hand? Okay, okay, a few. That's good. That's good. Um, I uh, gained a reputation when I was in college for being um, the respectful heckler. So I would go to basketball games and I would yell respectful things at the ref. Right? I would stand up and I, I, if, that, if there was a call that I disagreed with, I would scream at the ref something like, Sir, I respectfully disagree with you, but I respect you as a person. People got a kick out of that. That's, that's good heckling. When you are a high-level athlete, when there's high-level uh, athletic abilities, one of, the, uh, one of the things that happens inevitably is in the stands, there are a bunch of knuckle-dragging mouth breathers who are calling you a loser or, or something worse, right? They are... They're questioning your abilities. They think they know better than you. And that's frustrating, right? When you've been working your tail off for years, most of your life, 
when you've been perfecting your craft, when you've been learning and growing and honing, and they have been at home playing video games, and you know that they can't do a tenth of what you could do. They, they couldn't even approach your greatness. It's crazy that they would have the nerve to jeer, right? It's natural if you wanted to ever punch a heckler. Well, in some cases, that has actually happened, where hecklers have gotten theirs. Uh, for uh, example, in 1991, a guy named Albert Bell was playing for the Chicago White Sox, and there was a fan heckling him in the stands, talking trash. And finally, he got so fed up that he picked up a baseball and he beamed the guy right in the chest. As you can imagine, the dude shut up after that. Or in 2004, uh, the Seattle Seahawks were playing the New York Jets, and the Jets lost to the home team, Seattle. And as they were walking off the field, Seahawks fans were taunting them. Then to add insult to injury, a number of the Seahawks fans started picking up snow and making snowballs and throwing them at the Jets players. Now Jets defensive end Sean Ellis did not take kindly to having snowballs thrown at him and his teammates. And so he picked up a chunk of snow the size of one of my children and he chucked that into the stands and hit a guy. That guy ended up suing uh, Sean Ellis, though I don't know who won that lawsuit? To me, that sounds like uh, pointing fingers at each other and who wins in that situation. Or, or how about in 2004 when Texas Rangers relief pitcher Frank Francisco was being heckled by a fan in Oakland. And Francisco got so angry that he picked up a folding chair and threw it at the guy. Now, it would have been bad enough if he had hit the guy with the chair. But it turns out he wasn't as good pitching chairs as he was pitching baseballs, and he didn't hit the guy, okay? He hit an innocent lady who was standing nearby, and he was uh, suspended 16 games and charged with a felony. You would think that fans would be more careful about heckling elite athletes, but if you think that, you would be wrong. Here's another snowball incident. A guy named Lincoln Kennedy. Okay, Lincoln Kennedy was an offensive lineman for the Oakland Raiders, uh, sizing in at a very modest 6'6", 340. I don't think he's the type of guy that any rational person would mess with, right? Uh, I would never throw a snowball at Lincoln Kennedy. He's got two president's names, after all. But apparently some drunk Denver Broncos fans weren't thinking straight and they decided to do that dumb thing, which is to mess with Lincoln Kennedy. They were, the Raiders were walking off the field and they too were being pelted by snowballs. And one of these snowballs hit Kennedy in the face and cut him right under the eye. And so Kennedy jumped up into the stands and confronted this fan verbally at first, okay, he didn't throw a punch yet, verbally he accosted this fan, and apparently this fan had some liquid courage going on, because he didn't back down, and so Kennedy sat him down with a fist, and knocked him slam out. Uh, okay, this one, this one I have to side with the player, 
I, I really do have to side with the player on this one. Uh, Vernon Mad Max Maxwell, another guy who, if he has a name Mad Max, don't mess with him. Mad Max played for the Houston Rockets in the 90s. And in 1995, a Portland Trailblazer fan got very personal in his heckling. He didn't make fun of Mad Max. He made fun of Maxwell's wife for having a miscarriage. Understandably, Maxwell did not shrug it off. Okay? He charged up into the stands and broke the guy's jaw. I, I don't believe he was too broken up about the 10-game suspension or the $20,000 fine that came with that. Raise your hand if you would have done the same thing. Okay, let's be honest. I absolutely would have done the same thing. The most famous instance of athletes fighting against fans was the infamous Malice at the Palace in November of 2004. Now, as I look out into this crowd, most of you were not old enough for that game. Okay? How many of you have heard of this game? Boy, I feel old right now. Okay, a couple of you. The Malice at the Palace. In this infamous scene, the Indiana Pacers were playing the Detroit Pistons in Detroit at the Palace. And the Pacers were ahead 97 to 82 with 45 seconds left in the game. Pistons center Ben Wallace was fouled from behind by the athlete formerly known as Ron Artest. He changed his name later to Meadow World Peace after this event, ironically. So Wallace is fouled from behind by Artest. And Wallace turns around and, and retaliates by shoving Artest. And so the, the two teams start to fight. The, the players start fighting one another on the court. And, and you know, coaches are trying to pull them apart and, and, and push the instigators apart. And so Ron Artest was lying down on the scorer's table. As he was lying down on the scorer's table, a fan in the stands threw their drink on his face. And Artest did not shrug that off either. Artest got up and charged into the stands. This fan had gotten three rows up by then, and Artest did not take long to get him. Artest sparked a massive brawl in which a number of the players all charged up into the stands. And fans and, and players started to fist fight one another. Referees and event staff were trying to control this brawl. Um, the head coach of the Pistons grabbed the PA mic and started screaming at everybody to just calm down. But no one was calming down, right? As, as the event staff was trying to get the Pacers off the court, fans were continuing to throw their drinks and bottles and, and other debris. Chaos ensued. The entire place was engulfed in, in chaos. It, it, it became known as the worst night in NBA history. Suspensions abounded, and no one would ever forget uh, that uh, infamous night. Now, the question is this. What should an athlete do? And, and, and we've got a number of athletes here with us tonight. What should an athlete do when a fan is jeering? When the fans are taunting and heckling, 
What's the best thing? The best thing for a player to do. And, and along that same vein, as fans, we're all sports fans probably, what is going to make fans cheer the hardest? Well, that's easy. It's when the player shushes the crowd by their play, right? You know what I'm talking about. It's, it's, the, it's, it's one of the most exciting things about being a sports fan. When your team is on the ropes, especially if your team is at the opposing team's venue, and it seems like everything is lost, your team is going to lose, and then the game-winning shot, swish, and everyone goes silent. No, we, we, we love those moments, right? You think, about, think about the three being sunk at the buzzer and the player turning around and going, shh. It's legendary, right? We, we love it. It's savage. We're like, ah, my dude did that. Think about, for example, one of the most famous sports memes ever, okay? Notre Dame in 2015 was at UVA. At the time, Notre Dame was ranked ninth in the country. UVA... Tremendous underdog. But somehow, with nine seconds left, UVA is in the lead, 27-26. UVA fans are getting ready to rush the field. This is going to be one of the biggest moments in their stadium history. All right, This is going to be one of the most legendary moments ever. But then, with 18 seconds remaining, Deshaun Kaiser drops back, throws a 50-yard bomb to Will Fuller, who dances over a defender into the end zone for the game-winning touchdown. And from that, we get the meme, sad Virginia fan. You guys know that one with the Virginia fan who's just slumped over the stands? One of the greatest sports memes ever. That, that is how you stop the hecklers. That's how you stop them. One of my favorite examples of an athlete Getting back at the hecklers is Cristiano Ronaldo. Any soccer fans here? Soccer fans? Okay, a few. Very, very good. Um, Cristiano Ronaldo spent most of his career at Real Madrid. He's now with Juventus, uh, but most of his career was at Real Madrid. Their, their number one rival is, of course, the team Barcelona. This is where you boo. 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 Thank you. Barcelona's home arena is called Camp Nou. And in Ronaldo's storied career, in what arena has he scored the most goals? Camp Nou. When he's at his rival's house, he is at his best. It's legendary. In 2012, Real was playing Barcelona at Camp Nou. And their game, whenever they play, is called El Clásico, the classic. It's one of the greatest rivalries in all sports, okay? This was a, a, a game in which the league title was on the line, okay? And so Real had to win. They couldn't, they couldn't lose. They couldn't draw. They had to win this game. It was pressure on, okay? So in the 72nd minute of this game, it's tied one-to-one. And Ronaldo flashes down the center of the pitch between two defenders. And his teammate, Ozil, puts this perfect pass right in stride. Two touches, boom, boom. Ronaldo shoots it past the keeper with a perfect 
touch. At this point, of course, all of Camp New has been heckling. They've all been jeering. They've all been screaming. And now Ronaldo scores the goal that is going to seal the title for Madrid. And in that moment, Ronaldo introduced one of the sport's most iconic celebrations called the Calma Calma. You know what the calma calma is? He scores this goal, and as the fans are going nuts right before he scores, they're all, they're all going crazy. He knocks it in, and he runs over, and he's like, <laughs> and he's like, I'm here. Calm down. Calm down, everybody. The calma calma. It's iconic. He ended up doing the calma calma more times at Camp Nou. It's awesome. I love the calma calma. Guys, it's legendary. Moments like that are are among the greatest moments for a fan of a sport. We cheer when the hecklers get shamed by our favorite athlete. When he or she gets to the crowd. But what if? What if there were a move even more legendary than that? What if there was a move even more legendary than scoring the winning points to shush the crowd? What if there was a more legendary move than the calma calma? What would it be? And who could pull it off? Well, you're in church, and this is Easter. So I think you know the answer is going to be Jesus. Jesus pulled a move like this. And it is one of the most legendary moments in all of human history. So hopefully you are in the book of Matthew. Before we see the move that Jesus pulled, we got to set the scene. Okay, we have to set the context. I want to paint a very clear picture. A very clear picture uh, what is going on here. Because what I want to show you are several moments that take place in the hours leading up to and during the sacrifice of Jesus. Okay, I don't don't need to state the obvious here, but setting the scene is important to set the characters. So Jesus is God, right? Not just an elite man, not just a great teacher, not just a leader of the people. Jesus is God. And so Jesus has created himself, everything and everyone. In the scene in which he finds himself, he is not just a participant in the scene, he is a creator of the scene. So this is not just like an elite athlete among a bunch of knuckle draggers, okay? This is God among the people that he created. Okay, so that's one character. Then the other character are those people that God himself created, that God himself has authority over, that God himself is above in every way, and they are the hecklers. So I want you to note that contrast, okay? Again, not just a bunch of idiot fans screaming at an athlete. These are living Legos screaming at the builder. This is art screaming at the artist. These are ants screaming up at the Milky Way as if they are bigger than it. 
So, scene number one is in Matthew chapter 26, verses 57 through 68. If you don't have a Bible, the words will be behind me on the screen. Scene one. This is Jesus before Caiaphas and the council. It says, Then those who had seized Jesus led him to Caiaphas the high priest, where the scribes and the elders had gathered. And Peter was following him at a distance, as far as the courtyard of the high priest. Going inside, he sat with the guards to see the end. Now the chief priest and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus that they might put him to death. But they found none. Though many false witnesses came forward, at least two came forward and said, This man said, I'm going to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. And the high priest stood up and said, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But Jesus remained silent. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus said to him, You have said so. But I tell you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his robes and said, He has uttered blasphemy. What further witnesses do we need? You have now heard his blasphemy. What is your judgment? And they answered, He deserves death. Then they spit in his face and struck him. And some slapped him, saying, Prophesy to us, you Christ. Who is it that struck you? So in this scene, in scene one, Jesus is on trial. And by the way, this is not a legal trial, okay? Everything that's setting up this trial is going against the rules. But they're having it anyway. And so at this trial, Jesus is heckled by the high priest and by false witnesses that that they're paying to to give false testimony about him. So, So people are coming forward to lie about Jesus, As he is on trial. They are perjuring themselves against Jesus. Then the priest address Jesus. And they say, I adjure you by the living God. And I imagine Jesus is going, me? You adjure me by me? Ironic. But they say, I adjure you by the living God. Are you the Christ? And Jesus, I love it, dude. Jesus is like, your words, right? I mean, you said it. You said it. And the high priest tore their robes, and then they spit in his face. Insulting, right? They spit in his face, and they slap him. And then they mock him. They're, they're, they're all slapping him and going, tell us who slapped you. Tell us who slapped you. Okay, this is tremendous disrespect. It, it's false witnesses, false testimony, and lies Verbal and physical abuse. That's scene one. Scene two in chapter 27. Now Jesus is going from being on trial with the high priest. And Jesus is now going to go before Pilate. Pilate is the Roman proconsul. He is the Roman leader of the region. And so the high priest bring him to Pilate, the governor. Matthew chapter 27 beginning in verse 11. Now, Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus, again, guys, I love how Jesus responds. Jesus said, You've said so. 
But when he was accused by the chief priests and elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate said to him, Do you not hear how many things they testify against you? But he gave him no answer, not even to a single charge, so that the governor was greatly amazed. So now he's gone from from being on trial in front of the high priest. Now he's on trial in front of the governor. And the high priests are there and they're launching all of these accusations at him. False accusations. Okay, so he is on trial being lied about. And he's silent. And Pilate is amazed. Because Jesus is not addressing any of these accusations. The hecklers are heckling like crazy. In a setting that really matters, okay? Literally, his life is on the line. At this point, all Jesus has to do is say, hey, none of this stuff is true. This is all garbage, okay? Don't listen to them. I can give you evidence. That's, it. That's what Pilate is expecting him to do, but he doesn't. He just lets the hecklers heckle and heckle and heckle. Scene number three. Again, in chapter 27, now looking at verses 15 through 26. Now at the feast, the governor was accustomed to release for the crowd any one prisoner whom they wanted. So this was a tradition that they had. Uh, As a a yearly tradition, the governor would say, you guys can pick somebody who's in jail to be freed. And and all the the, the people would be wearing their, their hashtag, you know, free willy shirts. And, and Willie would come out, okay? So they're like, all right, well, who do you want? Who do you want to be free? And they had a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. So when they gathered, Pilate said to them, whom do you want me to release to you? Barabbas or Jesus, who's called the Christ? For he knew that it was out of envy that they delivered him up. Besides, while he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent word to him, have nothing to do with that righteous man, for I have suffered much because of him today in a dream. Now the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. The governor again said to them, which of the two do you want me to release for you? And they said, Barabbas. And Pilate said to them, what shall I do with Jesus who's called the Christ? And they all said, let him be crucified. And he said, why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, let him be crucified. So when Pilate saw he was gaining nothing, but rather a riot was beginning, he took water, washed his hands before the crowd saying, I'm innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. And all the people answered, his blood be on us and on our children. Then he released for them Barabbas and having scourged Jesus, delivered him to be crucified. Well, you want to talk about heckling there. Now now we've gone past insults. We've gone past jeers, okay? We have gone past taunting and calling names. At this point, they are literally calling for him to die. In, by the way, the most humiliating way that a person could die, okay? Because crucifixion was not only painful, it was also a spectacle, Crucifixion was intended to be something that would not just kill someone, it would shame them. They would be crucified in a public location in front of everyone, on one of the main thoroughfares, okay? Today, we have humane punishment, or so we think, right? When, there, when there's a death penalty enacted, it's in a secret place. Nobody sees it. There's no cameras. 
But here, the death penalty is enacted in the public square. Okay, so in the marketplace, people are walking by as someone is being crucified, as we will see. So these people are calling for Jesus to be killed in the most humiliating way possible. Now, we we have all seen idiot fans issue death threats on Twitter, right? We have all seen morons type on a screen, I hope you die after an athlete messes up. This is far, far worse. They are actually, literally begging the governor to kill a completely innocent man for nothing. Scene number four, still in uh, chapter 27, beginning in verse 27. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters, and they gathered the whole battalion before him. That's like 600 people, okay? They gathered the whole battalion before him, and they stripped him, and they put a scarlet robe on him, And twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and put a reed in his right hand. And kneeling before him, they mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And they spit on him and took the reed and struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe and put his own clothes on him and led him away to crucify him. So here the soldiers... Now responding to what they've been told to do, they bring him in, and they don't just crucify him. Okay? They, they don't just say, all right, uh, we'll send him to the execution place. They bring him in, and they decide, we're going to have some fun with this guy. All right, gather everybody in here. Let the call go out. Come on in, everybody, you need to see this. Let's all be a part of this. And so Jesus, in front of these 600 men, is stripped naked. To shame him. Then they took a scarlet robe and they put it on him because scarlet is the color of royalty. They're mocking him, right? They, they put together a crown of thorns and they put it on his head and they, they put a reed in his hand to mock his kingship. And then they start mockingly bowing down to him and worshiping him. And they spit on him. And they beat him. And they strip him naked again. And then they send him off to be crucified. The heckling gets worse and worse. Finally, scene number five in chapter 27, verses 32 through 44. As they went out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. They compelled this man to carry his cross. And when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull, they offered him wine to drink mixed with gall. But when he tasted it, he would not drink it. And when they'd crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. And then they sat down and kept watch over him there. Over his head, they put the charge against him, which read, This is Jesus, King of the Jews. Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you're the son of God, come down from the cross. So also the chief priest with the scribes and elders mocked him, saying, He saved others. 
He can't save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we'll believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I'm the son of God. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. So they put up a sign above his head where everybody's walking by. They put the sign up to shame him even further. The soldiers who had already shamed him and heckled him now sit down and cast lots for his clothes. Again, as people are passing by, people are walking by and they're deriding him. They're making fun of him. They're saying, hey, you said you're God. You said you're powerful. Come down off the cross then, buddy. Yeah, you're God all right. Loser. The thieves on the cross on either side of Jesus are also looking over and taunting him. Hey, if you're God, get us out of here. Or are you not? Now you don't save someone. Great, my lucky day. Thanks, buddy. And the chief priests gloat. They jeer. They taunt. Oh, you're God. <laughs> well, we're killing God then. So, we have a very, very clear picture here, right? We have a very clear picture of the heckling, the jeering, the taunting, and the abusing. We painted here a very clear picture of how these people are treating the God-man. So with that in mind, I want to show you two legendary moves by the goat. Number one, Jesus humbly loved the hecklers. Jesus humbly loved the hecklers. What is, what is Jesus' response? When all these people are launching all this abuse at him, when all these people are taunting him in this way, how does Jesus respond? He responds with measured, controlled silence and self-control. Measured, controlled silence and self-control. Look at, look at these passages again, this time really looking at Jesus. When Jesus is before Caiaphas and the council, when all these people are lying at him, and Jesus, it says in verse 63, remained silent. And so the chief priest says, well, I adjure you by the living God. Are you the son of God? And Jesus said, well, that's what you claim, right? He's measured. <laughs> Jesus doesn't lash out. He's measured. You have said so. And by the way, you're going to see me in power. Measured. Self-controlled. Poised. In the next scene, in chapter 27, Jesus is before Pilate. And Pilate is, is saying, well, what are these people saying about you? Are, are, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus' answer again is, your words, right? And then as the, the, the chief priests launched their jeers, it says Jesus gave him no answer, not even to a single charge, so that the governor was greatly amazed. In the next scene, when Jesus is mocked by the soldiers, Jesus doesn't speak a word. 
not a word. At the crucifixion, as Jesus is on the cross being abused, as the people are launching insult after insult, Jesus is self-controlled. Jesus is silent. Now, I want you to know something beyond a shadow of a doubt. Okay, I want, I want to be very clear that what Jesus could have done is wipe them out. In a second, he could have done that. Look at chapter 26, if you've got a Bible with you. I forgot to put this on the presentation. If you've got your Bible, look at chapter 26. And in this scene, Jesus is being arrested, all right? So, so they, they, they bring with them the army to arrest Jesus. And Peter tries to cut some dude's ear off, and Jesus is like, whoa, 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 chill, man. Be cool. And Jesus said to him, put your sword back in his place. For all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? But how then should the scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? Jesus says, Peter, put the sword down. Let me be clear with you. If I wanted to, I could pray one prayer and God would send 12 legions of angels and wipe them all out. Trust me, I've got this. I could kill everyone. I could take them all out, okay? Jesus could have retaliated. He could have pulled a Ron Artest and lost his ever-loving mind, okay? Jesus could have charged the stands. Jesus could have gone to where the fans are screaming at him and throwing stuff at him and said, it's over. But he doesn't. He humbly took the abuse. Now, I'm going to be honest, and and I ask you to be honest, too. If you or I were in that situation, what would you have done? If I'm being honest... I would have called down fire from heaven. On the real, I would have called down fire from heaven. If I'm God and these people have the nerve to say this stuff to me, uh -uh, no, my own kids can't backtalk me, okay? I would have been calling down fire from heaven. But Jesus didn't have a breaking point even as he was being broken. We cannot miss. We we cannot miss the level of humility here. The the amount of self-control, the the selflessness, the, the unspeakable, unfathomable mercy. He should have killed every last one of them but he didn't. What did he actually do? For that answer, let's turn to Luke. If you don't have a Bible, the words will be behind me on the screen. Luke, chapter 23, in verse 34, Jesus is hanging on the cross. Jesus is hanging on the cross after all this abuse, right? Being abused in this moment. Hecklers heckling. Jeerers jeering. Taunters taunting. 
And what does Jesus say? Verse 34. Father, forgive them. They do not know what they do. Jesus' response to that heckling is, Father, forgive them. They have no idea what they're doing. They don't don't understand what's going on here, Father. They don't get it. Forgive them. Please forgive them. I'm hanging up here for them. Jesus didn't just ignore the hecklers. His silence was not ignoring them. He loved them. He loved them. And somehow he interceded for them. He prayed for them. He showed them unspeakable mercy. In this moment, Jesus, when he could have taken their lives... Instead, gave them his own. Jesus laid down his life. Every single one of us in his position would have rushed the stands. But instead, Jesus shows his inexhaustible measure of his love by interceding on their behalf and dying for them. That is legendary. That is legendary. That is praiseworthy. That is mind-blowing. That he would do that for them. But it goes further. It goes further. Because there's something that we need to understand. Something that we need to understand very clearly about ourselves. We need to understand that you and I are also hecklers. We are guilty of being hecklers. We are guilty of jeering Jesus. We scream all the time with our lives and our words, I don't need you, God. I know better than you. I'm wiser than you. You're a joke. You don't know what you're doing. I know how to run my life. You're doing a terrible job of running the world, God. If I was in your shoes, I know I would do this much differently. If I had your power, if I was in your position, if I was God, let me tell you, I would fix a lot of things. God, clearly, you don't know what you're doing. You did a lot of miracles then. Why don't you do it now? Why don't you fix X, Y, or Z? God, I'm not giving you control of my life. I'm just fine without you. What do I care? You say you love me. Daily, we constantly sin against him. We we constantly choose other things over him. We constantly dishonor Jesus with our words, with our choices, with our actions, with our life. But here's the thing, guys. Jesus, in response to our heckling, in response to our jeering, in response to our rejection, doesn't rush the stands and start punching. He intercedes on our behalf. He lays down his life for us. 
Jesus in response to the ways that we have treated him. With you and I specifically on his mind as he bled on the cross, he prayed, Father, forgive them. They have no idea what they're doing. Father, forgive them. They don't know. You see, Jesus humbly loved the hecklers then, and he humbly loves the heckler now. He loves you. Somehow he loves me. And as we have pelted him with snowballs and beer bottles and insults, he takes the beating and he lays down his life on the cross for us. That's legendary move number one. But there's a second legendary move. One that somehow may even be more legendary than the first. So here's number two. Jesus hushed the supernatural crowd. I don't want you to miss the story under the story. Okay, because there's a story here, but there's a story under the story. You see, there's a lot of people in the crowd. The, the people are jeering and heckling, and Jesus humbly loves them. But that doesn't mean that we don't have a shh. Okay? We do still have a hush the crowd moment. We just need to recognize who Jesus actually hushed. See, there's a battle that's waging in the heavens. And there is an enemy who has been stalking since the beginning, plotting to ruin the story that God has been writing. And this was the ultimate moment where that enemy thought that he had won. This was foretold from the very beginning. Genesis chapter 3. This will also be on the screen behind me if you don't have uh, a Bible with you. Genesis chapter 3. Looking at verse 14, this is God speaking to the serpent, the devil, Satan. This is after the fall that Adam and Eve have eaten the fruit. And now God looks at the enemy and he says this. Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all the beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. This is a prophecy about Jesus. This is foretelling the offspring of the woman and your offspring. The people that you will lead and the people that are coming from me. Jesus, he says to Satan, will crush your head. You'll bruise his heel. The prophecy stated that at the crucifixion, this would take place. From the very start of the story, Adam and Eve are tricked by Satan into rebellion. And those very same tricks, he keeps up for the rest of time. And at the cross, Satan thought, the victory is mine. If we look at the life of Jesus, from the very beginning of his ministry... Satan is trying to derail him. Uh, Look now at the book of Luke, chapter 4, verses 1 through 13. 
In Luke chapter 4, this is at the very beginning of Jesus' ministry, Jesus is out in the wilderness and the devil comes to tempt Jesus. Look at what it says. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days. And when they were ended, he was hungry. And the devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, do those words sound familiar? We heard those words at the crucifixion, right? If you are the Son of God, do something. Command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, To you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will be yours. And Jesus answered him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only you shall serve. And he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God... Throw yourself down from here, for it's written, He will command His angels concerning you to guard you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against the stone. And Jesus answered him, It is said, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. Satan knew exactly who Jesus was. Okay, It it was no mystery. Jesus shows up on the scene and Satan's like, "Uh Uh-oh, I gotta take him out. Okay, this is my chance. If I take him out, game over. This is the path to victory. He tried the same tricks against Jesus that he tried against Adam and Eve. He offered him forbidden fruit. And Jesus didn't take the bait. Satan tried to take him out. Jesus didn't take the bait. And I want you to see, because maybe you missed it, I want you to see what's at the end of verse 13. At the end of verse 13, it says that he... Ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. So this was not, all right, I give up, game over. It says he withdrew until an opportune time. So Satan said, all right, you beat me today, but I'm not giving up. I'm coming after you again. I'm going to pick my time, I'm going to pick my place, and then I'm going to come after you. What was that opportune time? The week of Jesus' crucifixion. That was the opportune time. Because what we read in the book of John is that it's Satan who is behind the betrayal. Now look at John chapter 13, verse 2. Taking you all over the Bible today. It's a full tour. John chapter 13, verse 2. It says, during supper... When the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. It's the opportune time. Satan's pouncing. He's like, all right, here it is. I will lead Judas to betray Jesus and hand him over. Then look at what it says in in verse 27. After he'd taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, what you're going to do Do quickly. Jesus sees it. Jesus sees that Satan is behind this. And Jesus looks at Judas and through him goes, whatever you're going to do, do it quickly. Go do it. I see you. Go do it. So it is Satan that's behind this. Satan is leading the insurrection. Satan is the one who is trying to get Jesus killed. So you can rest assured 
that all of the powers of principalities of darkness were on their feet cheering at the crucifixion. All the principalities of darkness in the heavenly realms, they are heckling and taunting and, and jeering. If, if Satan had succeeded in taking out Jesus, all of history would have been lost. He would have won the ultimate spiritual victory. The story for everyone would be over. God defeated. And that's exactly, exactly what he thought happened when he put it in the hearts of people to torture and then kill Jesus. So here's the moment, okay? Jesus is dead. He's died on the cross and he's buried. He is in a tomb, his body growing cold. This is the moment that it seems all was lost. This is the moment it seems game over. And you can bet your bottom dollar that Satan and all of his minions are dancing a jig on that grave. They're dancing a jig, acting like crazed fans who have just won a championship and then they go out and start burning stuff. I should say white fans. White fans are the only ones who do that. (laughs) They are dancing on that grave. They're rioting and burning. The crowd of darkness is going nuts. And then came Sunday. And then came Sunday. Look at Luke chapter 24. Luke chapter 24, verses 1 through 12. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices that they had prepared. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed down their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here. He is risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. And they remembered his words and returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary and the mother of James and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale and and they didn't believe them. But, But Peter rose and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in. He saw the linen cloths by themselves and he went home marveling about what had happened. Just when the crowds of darkness thought that victory was in their grasp, Jesus burst forth from the grave. Okay, this is legendary move of all legendary moves. Okay, on that day, when Satan thought it's over, the sun started to rise. And Jesus' eyes open. And he sits up and that stone is rolled away. And I can tell you, Jesus walked out of that tomb and went, I'm here. Calma, calma. I'm here. The goat is back. 
Victory is mine. It don't get more legendary than that. And he hushed the crowd. And here's what you need to understand. He did that for you. To set you free. Look at Hebrews now. Hebrews chapter 2. Just a couple of verses. Chapter 2, verses 14 and 15. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 and 15, it says this. Since therefore the children share in the flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil. And to deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. It says he took on flesh and he beat death to destroy the one who had the power over death, which was Satan. He crushed him. And just when he thought that it was over, he crushed him. Calma, calma, I'm here. He hushed the crowd. And why did he do that? It says in verse 15, to deliver, to deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Us. He did that for us. He crushed the enemy to set us free so that we could sing a victory anthem for all of eternity from 1 Corinthians 15, 55. Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? My friends, have you taken that gift for yourself? Have you received the victory that Jesus bought on your behalf? Have you submitted yourself to him as Lord of your life? Have you come to a place where you have said, I want that victory. I know that Jesus died for me. I I know that I've been a heckler. I know that I've jeered. I know that I've taunted, but I know that he humbly loves me that he died for my sin, that he rose from the grave, that he defeated the enemy on my behalf. Have you done that? If you haven't, will you do that today? If you've never received that, will you receive it today and join us in celebrating the victory? Because let me tell you very clearly, whatever it is that you're facing in your life, that seems insurmountable. Whatever enemy is against you, whatever thing is weighing you down, whatever sin or addiction or pain or abuse, whatever it is, whatever darkness that you think cannot be defeated, Jesus in his love comes to you and says, Calma, I'm here. Will you give yourself to that Victor, join me in prayer. God, thank you so much for the truth of your word. Thank you that you defeated the enemy on our behalf. Thank you that you did not treat us as our heckling deserved. Thank you, Lord, that in response for my taunting, in response to my... God, I pray that if there's anybody here
or watching online or listening on the podcast, any, anyone on the, under the sound of my voice. God, I pray if there's anybody who's not submitted themselves to that, Lord, that today would be the day that your spirit would draw them. That today would be the day that they would surrender. That today would be the day that they say, all right, I give up. I'm all yours, Jesus. God, save somebody's soul. God, we thank you again. We celebrate from Marcus Navarro. God, I pray that somebody else would join him. That somebody else will come and say, I need that for me. And that together as a church, we would sing in victory. Lord, do a work on our hearts. Set us free from addiction. Set us free from sin. Set us free from the darkness that follows us. Let us live in victory every single day. May we all be fully and totally submitted to you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to sing our closing song. And uh, as we sing, I, I say this every week, as we sing this closing song, if, if there's some decision that you need to make, if, if the Lord is working on you, if, if there's something that you've got to take care of, I'm going to be standing in the back. Come and talk to me. If, if you're saying, I, I need to give my life to Jesus today, come and meet me back there. And that doesn't end after the service is over, by the way. As this continues to, to work on you, hopefully throughout this week or, or, or even longer after that, I want you to reach out to one of us. I want you to reach out to one of our leaders, one of our student leaders, one, one of our adult leaders. Maybe somebody gave you a ride today. Reach out to them. As we sing this song, let's think about what surrender means. And also, you guys, as we sing this victory anthem, sing your heart out. He deserves it. If you would stand, we'll sing.